Some of you may be asking, why are we reading about a dragon and stars at Christmas time? Is this, is this really a Christmas sermon passage? I'm going to argue it is. Uh, we, in the series, it's a brief one for around Christmas time. We're just looking at the role that Mary played. And what we find out in this passage, there was more going on than meets the eye when, when Christ was born. And so that's what we're going to look at. But, but the truth is, we have some strange Christmas stories in our culture. Have you heard the one about the three ghosts who, who try to scare a, a stingy man into being more generous? Or the story of how a flying uh, reindeer with a glowing nose somehow saves the day? Or how about the one where the off-duty cop manages to save uh, the people of Nakatomi Plaza from terrorists? Um, oh, and one of the favorites is that forgotten child who manages, manages to thwart two bungling burglars with a bunch of homemade traps? Or my favorite, the grown man dressed as an elf with his childlike naivete convinces jaded New Yorkers to be more cheerful. Like, we have a lot of stories that are like, that's, that's a Christmas story, but that's when they show the movies. Um, Revelations 12 is a very strange Christmas story. It is another way of looking at the birth of Christ and and what his coming meant within our world. And the way to think about this story, to get your head around it, is imagine you're sitting around a campfire in you know, a climate where maybe you would be outside at, at Christmas time, and you're, you're looking up at the stars, and, and some old guy says, now gather around, youngins. Let me tell you about the, the, the woman clothed with the sun. And, you know, because obviously they would have spoken Scottish as they sat around the... But, but, but the story, it's, it, you're picturing the stars, they're looking up at the constellations. And, and you know, you see the story about a, a woman giving birth and a dragon trying to eat the baby, and, and then there's this war in heaven, and is this really about Jesus? Yes, it is. But it's using the language that would have been very familiar with the original recipients of Revelation 1. It's using the language of Greek myth. It's telling the Christ story in the, the, the literary style that they would have told the Greek myths. To understand this passage, what you really want to do is you want to understand the Greek myth of Zeus and how Zeus in the Greek telling became the, the Lord of heaven, the, the, the highest of all the gods. You see, Zeus's father was named Cronus, and Cronus had been told that one of his children would overthrow him. And so Cronus was like an evil, evil god. Actually, he's one of the titans. And so Cronus, whenever one of his child children is born, would, would swallow it. So Cronus would be there waiting, and his wife or, you know, was the mother goddess Rhea. So when Rhea would give birth, Cronus would immediately swallow the baby. Uh, Rhea got a little annoyed at that. And so she, she thought, I, she came up with a plan. She wrapped a stone in swaddling, and she substituted, so when Zeus was born, she substituted the stone for Zeus, and Cronus swallowed the stone. 
and Zeus was, was uh, taken away and hidden in a cave in Crete, the island of Crete, and there he became strong, and when he was fully grown, he then came to deal with his father. And so the first thing he did is he tricked his father using some potion into vomiting up his siblings. Now you'd think they would have like died, but they're gods, you know, and so they, they were just there all the time in Cronus. And so when he vomited them up, then you get um, Poseidon and who are some of the uh, uh, Hermes and some of the other gods and, and uh, Ares, the god of war. Like, so all of a sudden, Zeus has all his brothers and sisters. Athena would have been one of them. And then there was a battle between Zeus and his siblings against Cronus and his fellow uh, what they call the Titans. So this is known as the War of the Titans. And so then the Olympian gods won that war. They defeated the Titans, and then they cast the Titans into the netherworld where they were punished in different ways. One of them, Atlas, was forced to hold up the foundations of the world. So now this story is it's obviously just a Greek myth, but this is a story that they would have told they, they would have grown up with around the campfire. You know, let me tell you about Zeus and the Titans and the war that took place. And so what Revelation 12 is saying, and it's being written, Revelation was specifically written to those who grew up in the Greek, 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 Greek areas, Greek-speaking areas. So they would have had, heard these stories later. They became Christians. So Revelation 12 is, let me tell you about the real war that took place in heaven. Because there really was a war in the heavenly realms. But it's not about Zeus. Instead, the child who is destined to be born as king of the universe is Jesus. It's the Christ child. And so instead of Zeus, you have Christ. It says the child who's destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Just a note, we'll come back to this, but that, that verb, rule the nations, the actual verb is shepherd. Shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. And the rod is not a, 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 a weapon of war. It's a, it's a tool of a shepherd. So think about how did, how did Zeus win his war? What did he have in his right hand? Bolt of lightning. Christ would have the rod of a shepherd in his hand. So then instead of the great red, or instead of Kronos, you know, Zeus's evil father, you have the great red dragon who's what? He's waiting to devour, swallow the child to be born. And so, and we find out that, that the great dragon is the same as the ancient serpent. The same serpent who was there at the beginning, who, who deceived um, Adam and Eve. Now, what is a dragon? It's a serpent who's gotten really big and has wings. Right? The dragons are basically serpents. And so God has an enemy. And that enemy was opposed to the, the rule of Christ. And then the third thing, then, then what about this woman of the stars? Well, instead of Rhea, you have this, this star-like pic picture of, of Mary, co a cosmic Mary. Because it's Mary who's the one who gives birth to Jesus. But I'm going to argue it's, it's a representative picture. It's not just Mary, it is also 
the, the faithful people among the Jews. And we'll, we'll look at, at why that. Because the Messiah would be born of a woman, but he would be born of the Jewish people. So the, 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 mother, the, the mother of the stars is more than just a, one woman. And then in the story, of course, Zeus becomes ascendant. Well, in, in Revelation 12, the, the dragon opposes the birth of Christ... And just as, uh, but Jesus wins out and he says he's caught up to God. So instead of at a cave in Crete, Jesus is taken up and is seated on the throne in heaven, seated at the right hand. And there he is, the ascendant one, the one who's above all powers, right? So, so all this takes place in, in Revelation 12. And what we see is that God's enemy, Satan, was opposed to the ascendancy of Christ. Likely because he wanted that position for himself. Right? God's enemy uh, was actually an angel. We find out that, that he was an angel called Lucifer, which just means lighted one. This comes from the passage Isaiah 14. Now Isaiah 14 is on one level talking about the king of Babylon, but as scholars read it, and you can see why in the language, it's pointing to a power behind the king of Babylon. And here's what it says. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? You, how are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. That is the heart of Lucifer. He was a glorious angel, but he wanted to be above God. And so when the plans came to light that God was going to make a human, his own son, the, the Lord of all, that's when we see we get this rebellion. And he turns against God. It also calls him the accuser of God's people. He attacks God by tempting and deceiving and accusing those who are, are God's people by, by trying to go against them. Here, we see him trying to devour Christ. So again, we picture the, the birth of Christ as silent night, you know, all peaceful in that. Well, Mary and Joseph had to flee the country because Herod was so jealous he was going to try to have their baby killed. Right? There was, Satan did try to spur the powers, and that's how he works. He works through the powers of this world, the kings of this world, to do his bidding, to accomplish his works. And so um, God had to protect Jesus, baby Jesus, by, by guiding Joseph and Mary to, to go into Egypt. So that's where Jesus was initially raised, in Egypt, until Herod had died, and then they came back. And what we see is that in the coming of Christ, there is a bigger battle going on. A war in heaven. Um, the, the, an angelic rebellion, because Satan was not alone, he had allies. Did you catch that part where it says the dragon with his tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven? What we believe is a third of the angelic host sided with Satan against God and joined in the rebellion that took place. Now, this rebellion took place outside of our timeline. We, it, 
It's, it's always hard to fit, like, well, did this happen after Jesus was born or before? God's timeline is outside of our, our ability to, to grasp. And it could be that God's plans were made known, and that's what spurred the rebellion of Satan and his things, even before it happened on earth. But there seems to be some connection between God's plan to create human beings and to have had the Son of God be the exalted one that spurred this rebellion. And I would say it's still going on. In Ephesians 6.12, it, it says, um, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I was looking closely at this verse. In fact, I, I'm, on the side, I was, I was taking a Greek course just to catch up on, on, on online's Greek course, and we studied this passage, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is about the passage I'm talking about. It, like, I kind of got excited. And that word where it says the, the cosmic powers, it, it's cosmocraturus, and it means literally cosmic mighty ones. So among those who join Satan in the rebellion are these powers that are far beyond our ability to grasp. They're, they're these spiritual beings that, that, that have great power and that are against us. Um, so however it works time-wise, time -wise, we know that there was this rebellion and it says, and there was war in heaven. And God had his chief general, Michael, and, and who led the forces. So it seems like Gabriel did all the announcing. Gabriel's like the secretary of state that announced the birth. Michael was like a secretary of defense. So he was the one that, that led, the, led the angel armies. They defeated Satan. And just as the titans were cast down into the netherworld, so Satan and his forces, it says there was no room for them left in heaven. Because in heaven, God's presence fills all of the heavenly realms, they couldn't stay there, so they were cast down into the lower regions. That's what happens to these, these rebel angels. And, and so um, they're, they're not able to be in God's presence, so where are they? They're in our world. God is omnipresent within our world, but there seems to be room for these angelic enemies to still exist here. What does it say the key to victory is? I, I don't know if you watch enough superhero movies. I, I probably watch too many. Um, yeah, and, and if you watch enough of them, it seems to be like they all have power to shoot light. Right? Because that, that's all it is. Like they're going like this, and light comes out, and it's whose light is more powerful if you, you know, those that like, okay, they have more power and it's sometimes a little silly. How, how do angels make war against one another? You, you got to wonder, like, do they shoot light? Do they? Well, it says that the power of Satan is in accusing God's people. That seems to be where he gets his power. You see, because every human being has sinned and fallen short, we are open to accusation, and we are deserving of condemnation. And, and in order to, and so Satan comes at us to, to exploit that, to exploit our weakness and sin. And then how is the victory won? 
The key to victory is the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, and the word of the testimony of his people. So because of the blood of the Lamb, he took the accusations on his own shoulders. He died to take away the guilt that we rightfully owed. He, t- he died to set us free from the condemnation. Even in this passage, we see the gospel message. We could not clean up our own life. We could not make ourselves righteous. We were always going to be prone to the enemy and his accusations. But we have one who's spoken for us, who set us free from the guilt of our condemnation. Jesus Christ, when he died for us, he won the victory for us. And we join the victory when we join in the testimony, the word of the testimony of those who love Christ, who love the Lord more than they love their their own lives. So that's how we, we join in this victory. When we do that, his the accusations of the enemy have no power. Then what's the aftermath of the war? So Satan and, and his angels lost, but what happens then? Well, that's where it says, Rejoice, O heavens! Right? You, the victory's been won. Satan's cast out. But woe to the earth. Because now Satan cannot defeat God directly. And so who is he going to pour his wrath out upon but God's people? Those who now live on the earth. And it says his time is short. He, he will not, you know, God will one day put an end to evil and to the personification of evil, to, to the Satan, to the evil one. If you, if you read to the end of the book, Revelation 20 talks about that part. But until then, God's enemy will turn his anger upon God's people on the earth. And that's what we see happening in verses 13 to 16, where it talks about the pursuit of the woman. Now here's where I talked about that it represents Mary, and we do know that Mary and Joseph, they were in danger and had to flee, but this is something else. Verses 13 to 16 represents how the enemy sought to destroy the Jewish people. And it's using these word images. It says, And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now, why do I say that this, this woman represents the Jewish people? In the, the, the crown of stars, how many, how many stars were there? Twelve. It says that she had a, a crown of 12. It's actually, by the way, it's not the crown, a royal crown. It's a wreath of victory. It's a different word. So the, the wreath of victory that the woman had back in verse, the first couple of verses, 12 stars, that's representing the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Um, we also know later in Revelation, a different woman, the bride, will represent the church. So, so my argument is this woman represents the faithful of the Jewish people. The, 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 those among God's people, the Jewish people, who, who, who held on, they get the wreath of victory because they held on in faith throughout the ages. And the specific incident, it's described in 14 to 16, where it's talking about the, 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 Satan pour, the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth to, to sweep her away with the flood, but then the earth swallowed the water. You're not going to find this exact thing 
what, um, in anywhere in the scriptures, but it, it's more like a, a, a bigger picture of, of the per ongoing persecution of the Jews that happened in that time. So, so it's especially evoking the Exodus event, where you have the, the, the flood because they went through the Red Sea. Remember, there's that portion of the story. But here, here's the thing that convinced me that this is really about the Jewish people. And, and where in the passage it says, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Look at Exodus 19.4. And this is what God himself says he did to save them. It says, to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So, in the history of Israel, there were many times, the Exodus being the clearest, when God's enemy tried to destroy the Jewish people. There were the Egyptians who wanted to drown the, the babies in the Nile River. Then you have the Midianites and the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Philistines who, who wanted to, to do that. And then the Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom. The Babylonians. Later, after, you have the Hellenistic kingdoms, the Seleucids. And then finally you get Rome who, who literally destroyed the city of Jerusalem. In all of these, God protected them in his way. Um, he protected and held on to the Jewish pe people. He sustained them through all these attacks. And what I would say is, what the enemy meant for harm, God would repeatedly work for his own plans. He would repeatedly bring good out of it. So, because of these, these repeated times where Israel was threatened, the Jews had, had dispersed among the nations. It's called the diaspora. It's a technical term. The, the dispersal of the Jewish people. Now, what that meant was, is that when the gospel of the message of Christ was spreading, the Apostle Paul would go to a city. What would he find? He would find communities of Jew, Jewish people already there, established. And what did they what did they proclaim in those cities? There's one creator God. It, it, it set up the, the gospel to spread because the pagans had, of course, multiple gods, but God had arranged it so that when the good news of Jesus was spreading, there was already a foundation laid within all of these different cities. God took the hostility of, of Satan and turned it for his own plans in the spread of the gospel. I'm convinced that God has continued the existence of his Old Testament people and has a plan for them. The continuation of the Jewish people in the, the history, even 2,000 years later, um, even where they have not come to agree with us, that Jesus is the Messiah, I still see that as part of God's plan. Now, salvation is through Christ, through the, the message of the Son of God. God's saving activity is centered in Jesus. 
But the existence of the Jewish people is still part of God's plan. Why? Because they continue to testify to these things. They bear witness to the truth of one God and his work in history. They bear witness to the law and a God who cares about right and wrong. We're so used to that, we take it for granted. But a God who gave the Ten Commandments that says, do not murder, do not steal. So the the Jewish people continue to bear the witness of that, that kind of God, a God who places ethical demands, a God who will judge us for how we treat one another. And, and I insist that their existence helps add validity to the Christian message about Jesus the Messiah, even where our Jewish friends have not yet taken the step of, of receiving Jesus as their Messiah. They're still part of God's plan. Romans 11, if you want to read through, Paul kind of tries to say that God still has a plan for, for his people, his Old Testament people, even though it's not the plan that leads to salvation, as the Christian message does. And I say this because I believe there's the, the, the enemy still has sparked irrational hostility towards the Jewish people that has continued for the last 2,000 years. Um, each generation, that, that hostility towards the Jews raises its, its head over and over again. Um, one of the stains upon the church history has been the mistreatment of, of Jews, in the, especially in the Middle Ages, uh, sometimes the church has participated in what I guess what you call anti-Semitism or persecution of the Jews. There were forced conversions, um, especially during the, uh, the Spanish Inquisition. There have been times when the powers that be would massacre whole Jewish towns and the church would, would nod in approval rather than speaking against it. There's been a, a times of scapegoating the Jews and confiscating their wealth, and the church did not defend the people. I, I think we should, we should have no part in such behavior. We might argue with our Jewish friends, and we, we want to seek to share with them the message of the Messiah that their own scriptures testify to, but we can never do that with pressure. We know their salvation is up to God. And when they're ready to receive, then God's ready to bless. Um, forced conversions were never a part of God's design. Um, but I, I still see that irrational hostility take place in the world. I think we see it in our modern times. Ever since the founding of modern Israel in 1948, the surrounding nations have, have tried to destroy it. Immediately, the, some declared war. And, and over, over time, the Jewish people, like, you think, oh man, there's no way they can win this war. All these nations are going to, to destroy them. And yet they keep, God keeps protecting them through it. In this current war against Israel, there are differing views on how Israel should conduct its war. And I know the podcasts I've been listening to talk about the challenge that, that, that Israel faces in trying to eradicate Hamas while not killing too many civilians, and, it, and it's just an a, a impossible challenge. I'm sure there's different views on how, on how culpable that is. But, and we definitely as believers, it's not 
we should still have compassion for, concern for the Palestinians. We should not just, oh well, they're getting what they deserve. That, that should not be our attitude either. But I just remember this. Israel is surrounded by multiple enemies that want to wipe them out from the river to the sea. And that irrational hostility has a source. God's enemy spurs it in every generation. Now, verse 17, to kind of turn, turn the page. So when God protected the woman, what then did the dragon do? It says the dragon became furious. And because God protected the woman, he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who's that? The church. The followers of Jesus. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. So he could not defeat God. Got kicked out of heaven. Could not defeat Jesus. God protected Jesus in his birth. Could not defeat the woman because God sustained her, you know, the Jewish people. So now the enemy wants to take us out. Wants to, to move us away from... It doesn't want to kill us. That does him no good. He wants to move us away from faithfulness in Christ. So realize that when we are putting our faith in Christ, we are signing on to a new kingdom. Colossians 1 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're a part of the kingdom of God, so the wrath will be aimed at us. I want to highlight four um, implications, cosmic implications of the, the Christmas story in Revelation 12. The first one, we are engaged in a cosmic struggle with a spiritual enemy. Never be confused. Our enemy is not fellow human beings. We are not against the people of this world. Our enemy is the one um, who's been the enemy of God. Christmas is not just some sentimental story of a baby being born. It's, it's, um, it's about the struggle, cosmic struggle, of who will be Lord of the universe. And, and Satan would, would turn us away from our belief, our faithfulness to the Lord. So that's what I, I want to read again, this Ephesians 6. I think this verse is key to understanding. You know, Paul's saying the same thing in different language. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic mighty ones over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places we need to cling to Christ and receive power to stand strong from him second implication the accuser of God's people has been defeated. Remember what, what his weapon is. He wants to, to believe, make us believe that we are condemned. He wants to, to highlight and whisper in our ear about our, 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 because of our sin, we're no longer welcome. Oh, you don't want to go in that building. right? They don't want you there. You've fallen too far. He will use every tactic in the book to keep you away from worshiping with God's people. He'll use distractions. He'll use accusations. Maybe you've had times where you've strayed from, from faithful worship, faithful following of Christ. 
And what, what led to that? Was it possible there was a spiritual voice whispering in your ear that, that got your attention? We need instead to listen to the one who speaks for us. The blood of Christ has set us free. Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Third, implication. Christ is victorious and now rules as a shepherd. When I actually went into the, the Greek and, and looked at this passage, that was the thing that stood out to me the most. Because I, you know, translated, you know, Christ rules over the nations. But the verb in, it uses is that it's literally shepherds the nations. And you think of the rod of, the, the iron rod, like, oh, that's, that's about, you know, a weapon. It's not a weapon. It's the, the staff of a shepherd. Right? We say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Here's a quote I found about how a, a shepherd uses his rod. It says, The rod was used to fight off wild animals and to count the sheep and direct them. The rod prodded them during the day in the fields and at night into the sheepfold. A willing sheep would respond to the prodding, but a stubborn, strong-willed sheep would not. Which sheep are you? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. My sheep listen to my voice. He who has an ear, let him hear. Are you allowing the shepherd to prod you, to speak into your life, to guide you? Or are you strong-willed enough to say, I'm going to go where I want to go? I don't care what anyone says to me. Are you following the voice of the shepherd? And you know what the enemy would do? He would make you too busy to listen. In fact, he might even use the Christmas celebration where we're frantic about buying gifts and putting up decorations and baking cookies and eating cookies and eating cookies <laughs> and eating... Yeah, um, to, to be so busy, we stop taking time to be prodded by our shepherd. Let us take time. Let us allow God to speak into our life. The fourth cosmic implication. We join the victory of Christ by the word of our testimony. It says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Here's key. For they love not their lives even unto death. We need to align ourselves with Christ publicly. And we must declare that we love Him more than we love our own lives. Now, we are not in an era, and I don't actually foresee us being in an era, but it, it could, I could be wrong, where we're going to face literal persecution or, you know, death because we, we testify to Christ. There have been times, like when Revelation was written, that the cost of publicly declaring for Jesus could mean death. But do we declare that we love Jesus more than we love our possessions? Do we declare that we love Jesus more than we love our comfortable lives? Or our downtime, our free time? Do we declare that we love our life 
more than we love our Savior. The enemy wants us to get used to the things of this world, so we'll be more attached to the prosperity of this world than we are faithful to the one who gave his life for us. That's why it's vital. When we worship, we're not just showing up and singing a song or two. We are doing battle with our own hearts every time we come in here on Sunday morning or when we get get alone with God on on Monday mornings. We are doing battle with our own hearts that wants to, to, to grab a hold of this stuff of this world and love it. When instead we need to say, Jesus Christ, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I love you more than anything else. And if I lost everything else, but I still had you, that is enough. Can you say that? Can I say that? Before we do our closing song, I want us just to weigh on that. Jesus Christ is the most important thing in my life. I have chosen him over everything this world has to offer. So before we sing our closing song, I want you to just just silent prayer, um, answer that question one more time. Jesus Christ, say this in your own heart to the Lord. In fact, close your eyes right now. I'm inviting you to say this in your heart to the Lord. Jesus Christ is the most important thing in my life. I have chosen him over everything this world has to 